The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 54 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. I want to start out today's interview by thanking my friend Elaine Gibson for introducing me to this week's guest. Barbara Kaplan is a 10-year melanoma survivor with a unique story. Even though there are many unique components about her story, we found many topics where our experiences were so similar, especially when it comes to topics like communication, the effect of cancer on our relationships, both good and bad, and the mental health impacts a cancer diagnosis creates. Barbara is the author of Noseworthy, a memoir of her experience. She has a degree in literature from the University of Minnesota and a certificate in creative writing from UCLA. In addition to Noseworthy, she's published several essays and articles on a variety of subjects, as well as a novel, Nothing Left to Lose. She lives in Chatsworth, California with her husband, Paul, and they're owned by Cats, Beckett and Alfie, and Callie the Wonder Dog. Alfie actually joined us for part of our chat. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome, Barbara. I'm so excited to have you here today. We were talking a bit before about, unfortunately, some of the more mainstream experiences in the cancer world have been. And I'm so excited for you to share your experience and all the uniqueness that that has brought for your life and also to share about your book because that that's really exciting as well. So I'm going to have you just jump in and share your story kind of start to present. Well, thank you, Jen. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because yes, my cancer, the cancer itself, melanoma is not unique, but what happened to me because of it is fairly unique. At least I don't know. Well, now I, I know because I've been through it and I've connected through cancer sites, but I don't personally know anyone else who has had the experience I've had. My story is actually kind of a long story, um, which is probably true for most cancer stories, because if it's a short story, that's usually not a good outcome. So I'm happy to have a long story. But it started way before my actual diagnosis, correct diagnosis, um, probably 15, 16 years ago, I had a little flesh-colored bump on my nose that was weird. There was just something, you know how you have that instinct that something is weird. Yes. So I went to my doctor and of course you have to have a referral and he sent me to a dermatologist and it was a new insurance group that I had not been with before. So it was a new dermatologist, not my previous one that I loved. And I walked in and he took one look at it and he said, well, that's just scar tissue. And I'm like, scar tissue? Why would I have scar tissue on my nose? I Nothing has happened to create a scar. And he said, oh, who knows? Here, just put this topical ointment on it and eventually it'll go away. I wasn't happy with that answer, but okay, give it a fair chance. Um, weeks and weeks passed and nothing changed. And I went back to my primary doctor and I said, I want a referral to a different dermatologist. And he said, oh, I've looked at the notes. He said, it's okay. There's nothing to worry about. It's fine. I said, you're telling me that. But I'm telling you, there is something weird about this bump. It gets irritated, then it heals, and it kind of peels, and then it gets red, and then it's fine, and then it's not. I said, isn't all that like cancer signs? And he said, no, it's just fine. But if you really want another doctor, send you to one, because thankfully, my primary care doctor is a good doctor, and I'm not going to let it go. I lesson number one, be an advocate for yourself. If you know something is wrong, I don't care what the doctor says, you need to follow your instincts. Amen to that. So I went to another dermatologist. I walked in the door. She took one look at it and said, 
we should biopsy that. So she did. And she called me a day or two later and she said, well, this is very unusual, but you have both basal and squamous cell carcinoma in that little bump. And she said, having two cancers is not unheard of, but it's, it's not very common, but we're going to do the Mohs technique. Now for what I call the uninitiated, the Mohs technique is where, because it's on your face and very prominently visual, they take a little piece off. They hope they get it all. They look at it under a microscope. And if they didn't get it all, they go back to just the spot where they still see cancer cells, take a little bit more. They keep doing that process. You're at the doctors all day. They do that process until they feel like they've got clean margins and then they sew it up. I went to the doctor. He did the Mohs. It took a couple of attempts. They got it clean. They took a little piece of skin from the rest of my nose and folded it over and sewed it up and sent me on my way. I healed up and I looked in the mirror and there was this dewdrop scar on my nose and like a little divot that it created. And I was horrified. It's like, oh my God, look at my face. I have this scar that's right up front and center that everyone can see. And uh, a little back note, I had had my nose done at the age of 40. I got myself a new nose at the age of 40 because for years I had wanted a new nose and I finally did it. So this was the beautiful nose that I had bought and paid for. It wasn't perfect. There were things about it I wasn't happy with because are we ever really happy with how we look? No, we're, you know, human. So, <laughs> so, but still it was a good nose. It was, I was, I was very used to it and now it was altered. So you get over it, you learn to live with it. You get used to looking at yourself in the mirror. The scar fades over time, years pass. It's not that big of a deal anymore to me. And my nose started to get freckled. I started to get little brown spots on my nose and I thought, okay, well, that's weird. Now I'm seeing a dermatologist yearly because I am after all a skin cancer person. And now I'm with a new insurance company, change of employers, see a new dermatologist. And I showed her that and she said, oh, that's just freckling from, you know, the scar tissue. She said, be sure you wear sunscreen. I said, I always wear sunscreen. And she said, well, I wouldn't worry about it. Gee, I've heard that before. But this time I foolishly believed her because it did just look like freckling. So I let it go and about a year passes and I'm at a wedding and someone comes up to me and says, oh, you have chocolate on your nose. And I'm like, chocolate? I haven't even had any of the cake yet. Why would I have chocolate on my nose? So I go into the ladies room and I look and sure enough, there's a little dark spot there that looks like chocolate or ink or dirt. And I don't think too much about it. And over the next couple of months, it became a constant refrain. Oh, you have ink on your nose. You have dirt on your nose. You have chocolate on your nose. You have something on your nose. <laughs> So you think I get the message, I have something on my nose. But I, you know, I, the other doctor had said, okay, it's okay. And I just wanted to get rid of it at this point. So I was going to make an appointment with her. And my husband coincidentally had just been to the dermatologist for his yearly body check because he too had had skin cancer, mild skin cancer many, many years ago. And he said, oh, you should go to this guy. He's the head of the department. He's incredible. He's great. So, okay, I'll go see Dr. Goldstein, but he was hard to get into. So another six or eight weeks passed before my actual appointment. I walk in, I tell him the story and the previous cancer and the freckling and the ink, everyone telling me I have something on my nose. And he takes one look at it and says, I'm sorry, but we need to biopsy that. Deja vu. It's like, okay, fine. So he said, but I'm going to have the best plastic surgeon that we have here at Kaiser. It's Kaiser Permanente for those people on the West Coast. I'm going to have the, the best plastic surgeon do it to minimize any damage that taking a biopsy will do. Great. A couple of weeks later, I go in for my follow-up. Well, the bad news, it's melanoma, which is a pretty horrible diagnosis. The good news is 
It's stage zero in situ. It's not deep. It's no big deal. Moe's. It's like Moe's, my old buddy Moe's. Okay. You know how that works. I get it. Uh, you know, I'm not thrilled about it. So we go see the new Moe's guy, the Kaiser Moe's guy. And he was the only doctor I had throughout this entire thing, whose name I will not mention. He was the only one who was very negative and pessimistic and did not have a good bedside manner. And he scared the bejesus out of me. And he looked at it and he said, I'm going to have to take a lot of skin. There's a lot of discoloration here and I don't know what's what. And it's going to be pretty dramatic. Okay. So what does that mean? You know, I, I don't know what that means, but I'm about to go away on a vacation to Yosemite. And I said, look, can we start all this when I get back? Because once they start, the procedure for a melanoma mose is different from the others. You don't sit there all day. They take the piece and they have to freeze it. Then they have to look at it the next day. And if they find that there's still cancer cells, they call you back in. So you're going on an every other day basis. We go off to Yosemite. He said, you're, you're okay to wait two weeks. I wouldn't wait any longer than that two weeks. Go have fun, whatever. So we take our week. We go to Yosemite. We have just an amazing time. In the meantime, the scar from the biopsy that the plastic surgeon had done is healing beautifully. And I'm going, oh, this is great. And then I realize they're going to start to dismantle my nose again. But okay, I'm going to find a way to get through this. I did it before. I don't know. I just, you know, to be over with. So we get back from Yosemite. I go through the first round. Sure enough, they didn't get it all. I go back two days later. I wait. I feel very not good about it. I'm, you know, and now the entire length of the top length of my nose, the skin is all gone, basically. Here's the insulting thing. And for all those of you out there who are women, this doctor who was the only one who did not have the good bedside manner, I said, I would like to see it. I would like to see what you've done. He said, it's pretty dramatic. I don't know that you really want to see it. And I said, I'm telling you, give me a mirror. I want to see what you have done. And he looks at my husband and says, can she handle this? And I'm like, excuse me? I see. And he looked at the doctor and said, give her the mirror. <laughs> so <laughs> that was my literally my only negative experience in the entire beginning to end cancer thing with all the rest of my doctors after that were just stellar and wonderful. So I looked at the mirror and it was shocking and horrible. But for me, and I think for you, Jen, based on your TED talk, knowledge is power. I wanted to know what I was dealing with. The unknown is far more terrifying to me than knowing what it is. So um, fast forward the day after that, I get a phone call. He said, the pathologist has determined that this is much deeper than we originally thought. He said, I can't do any more for you. We can't do this with Mo's. I am sending you to our head and neck surgeon, our oncological head and neck surgeon. That was pretty devastating. And I'm trying to imagine what the next step even is. Like in my brain, I cannot fathom what else are they going to do? What does this mean? I don't know what this means. Radiation, chemotherapy, uh, what, what, what? So now, of course, based on what I just said, knowledge is power. I cannot wait to get into this head and neck surgeon to find out what's going to happen because I just don't want to sit with the uncertainty. I, I of course, trouble getting in. I put on my best assertive patient phone call, get me in. I don't care what it takes, get me in. I can't work right now because I have an open wound on my face and I've been told any physical, excessive physical movement will start bleeding and you don't want to have that. So I'm kind of like, can't do anything but sit around the house. Just what you want to do when you have an uncertain fate is sit around the house with nothing to do. So there's not enough television to make you forget you've got melanoma. So, so I got in, we went to see this doctor who was supposed to be top notch. I was so 
sick to my stomach sitting in that waiting room. I got more and more nauseated as we were there. We waited 45 minutes. I got angrier and angrier at the long wait, but once I met him, I knew why. And But there was nothing we could do about it. He had squeezed me in. What are we going to do? And I was so sick to my stomach. By the time we got in there and sat down, I kind of pulled myself together. And he was the sweetest, tall, gentle giant, Dr. McNichol, soft-spoken. He sat down and he said, here's what you've got, desmoplastic melanoma a rare, not super rare, but a very difficult to diagnose, unusual melanoma. It often, if you look it up on Google, Jen, it masquerades as scar tissue. What did the very first dermatologist say? Oh, it just looks like a little scar tissue. Well, that scar tissue actually is hiding what is called a spindle tumor that runs deep into the epidermis that you can't see. So, and people after the fact said, oh, you should sue him. You should do this. You should do that. No, I had three different dermatologists. I had a plastic surgeon. I had two pathologists. None of these doctors figured out what it was. I mean, there were, I counted once, I think it was seven or eight doctors before a pathologist doing the, you know, after the most looked at it and said, something is very weird here and called back the original biopsy and looked at everything and retested, restained and set, and discovered that's what it was. Thank God he saved my life. That guy, doctor can't even remember his name now. Cause I'm, that's cause I'm old. Not because, <laughs> not cause he wasn't important. <laughs> Thanks to him. I'm, I'm old enough to not be able to remember his name. <laughs> uh, Casserini. That was it. Um, anyway, so, uh, the head and neck surgeon told me, look, there are a couple of ways we can approach this. We can take little pieces and maybe we'll get it all. And maybe we won't. And if we don't, you're going to be back here for another surgery. He said, this particular cancer is very slow to metastasize. Yay. That's good for me. It's why I'm still here after all those years of it probably being there, but it is very locally aggressive. It is known for coming back. And if we take a little piece and then, you know, plastic surgeon fixes you up and it comes back, there's another surgery. He said in five years, we could be discussing your remaining time. He said, the alternative is you let me take your entire nose now and we're done. It'll get it all. It won't have anywhere to come back. You know, I mean, presumably melanoma can show up elsewhere on your face, but he said the best chance of getting it all and not having it return is to do a complete rhinectomy. I think I don't have to tell you how shocking it is to have a doctor say to you, I need to take your entire nose off to guarantee you'll be here in five years. I don't usually get choked up about this, but for some reason I am, and you can edit that out if you want, but, but it, it was, it was shocking. It was completely and utterly, I'd never heard of such a thing. I couldn't even imagine. What does that mean? Do you like leave a flap on my face to cover the whole, what, what, how do you, what do you do with that? And he said, well, he said, you can, you will have a prosthetic. We will send you to UCLA because we don't do them at Kaiser. And they are masters of creating prosthetics. They uh, will create a prosthetic and you'll either glue it on, or if we're lucky and we have enough bone to work with and everything is okay, we will do an implant that you can attach it to. I you know, I had heard that there were magnets that hold prosthetics on. He said, no, clips are better. Magnets wear out. Clips are better. We would implant something and you would clip on the prosthetic. But we won't know if you can do that until after the surgery and we see what's left and how, you know, what else needs to be done to, for the cancer. That's secondary. He said, but, you know, but if you have to glue it on every day, it's not that big of a deal. I, I later on, of course, I realized it's a huge deal. I do not want to have to glue on my nose every morning. But at that point, I was so shell shocked. Uh, that was like the least of my concerns. 
So we leave the doctor's office. We get out to the street and I completely fell apart. And my husband, Paul, did also. And at this point, I should stop and say, Paul was with me for every single doctor appointment, every step of the way. He was unbelievable. In my book, when I talk about him, he said, you've created an image of me I can't live up to. I made him like an icon. I mean, all these people who have read the book, I heard from strangers because I've gotten a lot of email from strangers about the book. And and your husband, what an amazing man. And he is an amazing man to his credit. But the two of us stood there on Sunset Boulevard and cried. And in my head, it wasn't, oh my God, I have cancer. It was, oh my God, I'm going to be a bloody freak. I'm going to be a freak. How am I ever going to? And my job is sales, where I meet people, new people every day at their homes. I'm in home improvement. And how am I ever going to live my life? So that's what I was facing. So I scheduled the surgery, had a million doctor's appointments. They did an MRI of my brain. I wasn't sure why. I later asked the doctor after the fact, so why did you do an MRI of my brain? And he said, because if it had already gone to your brain, there was no point taking off your nose. Yeah. And it's such a common location for melanoma. Yes. Uh, brain and lungs, I, I believe, yeah. are the two, uh, the two places where it travels to most frequently. So I'm glad I didn't think for some reason. I'm very good at asking the doctor questions. I didn't even think to ask why. I would not have wanted to know that before I actually got the results that everything is is good. So um, I had the surgery. Uh, It was not a painful thing. It was not that big of a deal from it. You know, he called it a walk in the park, which I was a little annoyed at Um, (laughs) because he had, he had done enough, you know, they, I had gone to the prosthodontist at UCLA, the maxillofacial prosthodontic department at a lot of big words uh, at UCLA before the surgery they created a mold of my nose. They gave me a little plastic form that I gave to the surgeon who put it on under the bandages so that it would look like I had a bump in the middle of my face with the bandages on so that I didn't look quite so freaky. Although that's kind of a joke because the ba- with the bandages on, I looked like Freddy Krueger had taken a knife <laughs> to my face. You know, it was, <laughs> I, it, was uh, it was this big gaping hole. It was a mess. It was, you know, it was covered by bandages. But, you know, when I had to clean things and do things, the stitches were visible, the blood and the, cr- I was just, it was really, it was a bloody freak show under the, those bandages. So uh, when I got the bandages off a week later is when I actually saw it for the first time. That was quite shocking because as many of you may know, after you've had surgery, the surgical site was enormous, enormous and hideous. And it sh- has shrunk. And he told me, he said, it will shrink. But it looked like it took up my entire face. I had the Grand Canyon in the middle of my face. The only interesting part is that I could see my sinuses for the first time. Everybody wonders what the inside of your head looks like. Well, I know, lucky me. (laughs) So I dealt with the, the shock of seeing this hole in my face. He said, don't worry, it will shrink. And suddenly I was beset by an urge to do things, start projects, do things. I don't know why. I don't know where that came from. It passed. Um, the surgery itself and the psychological down uh, windfall was that I was constantly exhausted for weeks at a time. And I have since had, um, I did an interview for the Cancer Book Club on YouTube. And one of those women uh, who is currently fighting her own battle told me that she has learned that head and neck cancers are the most psychologically damaging and scary because it's so close to your brain. And, and because it involves the head, the face, the identity, this is your identity right yes. here. And, um, and I did not know that until I did that interview uh, a month or two ago that, and it's no surprise to me. That is why I was, I was seeing a psychologist. They sent me to an onco- oncological psychotherapist, more big words. 
but that was very helpful. And then once all that was over and I was home, I wasn't working yet. I just had to get well. I just had to recover from the surgery. And while I was doing that, the next question became, will I qualify for an implant to hold the prosthetic? And that now became, I was thinking I'd have the prosthetic in three or four months. But no, if you qualify for it, then you have to have another surgery. And then you have to wait for that to heal. And then they have to make the the prosthetic. And I didn't know that that took weeks and months. And all, all of a sudden, it's dawning on me, I am going to have months in without a prosthetic. So what I'm wearing in the meantime is that plastic form that the doctor had made me. And now I'm covering it with flesh-colored like band-aids and like a little surgical stuff that's flesh-colored. And it you can it looks like I had a nose job or I was in a car accident. And once all the black and blue subsided, that's the only thing that was wrong with my face. And I go into people's homes. I started back to work and I thought, I see people's children. I am going to scare the crap out of these kids. I went and because I'm rather whimsical anyway, and a little weird, which is good, I think, under the circumstances, Paul and I went to the sticker store at the farmer's market in Los Angeles, this giant sticker store. And I bought myself a bag full of stickers and I wore flowers and ladybugs and kitty cat paws on this thing in the middle of my face. And it, you know, I I looked at Paul, I put some on and I looked at Paul and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, it kind of calls attention to itself. And then we kind of looked at each other and started to laugh because (laughs) like this giant thing in the middle of my face doesn't call attention to it. It's like, come on. Which actually brings me to another little joke. I went to see the dermatologist over the course of this. Um, I had something on my arm. And of course, now they watch me like a hawk. They cut everything off of me. I've had so many pieces of cut off of my body. And thankfully, only one over the last almost 10 years has been precancerous. And they got it all. And that was it. So I show the dermatologist. Paul's in there with me for this one, too. And he said, well, he said, maybe we should maybe we should make sure and check it, he said, but I'm really concerned about doing that because it's going to leave a scar. And I started to laugh. And he looks at me, the nurses in there, Paul's in there, the doctor's in there. I start to laugh. And the three of them are staring at me kind of stony face. And then Paul gets it. And then I kind of point to, I do this, I make a circle around the thing in my face. And then the doctor gets it. Then the nurse gets it. The four of us are laughing (laughs) because, oh yeah, a quarter inch scar on my arm is—it's like that should be my worst problem right now. So these are all the ways that I got through the process. Now, let's take a step back because everyone should know I'm not some crazy superhuman woman. From the day I got the news that I was going to lose my nose. And by the way, the doctor gave me a choice and I opted for this as opposed to taking a piece of time. He said, it's your choice. And I said, let's just do it. I cried every single day. I would get through the day, the doctor's appointments and all that pre-surgery. I would get into bed 11 o'clock at night. Paul and I would turn on the TV. And as soon as the TV came on, I would break down in sobs. I would sob my head off every single night, sometimes during the day also, but every single night for weeks before the surgery, after the surgery. So, you know, I mean, I was devastated. I'm making jokes about it now, but this is with the hindsight of almost 10 years. And and the fact that here I am still alive. Yay. Cancer free. Yay. And, you know, with a tale to tell. But it was it was horrible. It was terrifying. It was, you know, I don't mean in any way to diminish the really traumatic experience that I went through losing my nose because all of cancer is a horrible thing. Losing your breasts is 
very traumatic. It has a lot to do with your identity as a woman, as a mother, as a sexual person, all of those things. Even losing a piece of your liver, you know, um, I, I, I knew a guy who lost a testicle to cancer. I mean, it's all devastating, but most people don't know about it unless you tell them. Here is right. something on my face that I cannot hide. And they told me when I got my prosthetic, I should wear glasses because it will help hide it. That's just not who I am. First of all, I hate wearing glasses. I wear contact lenses. I am like, this is me. I have a tattoo on my arm of an open book. It signifies two things. I'm a writer. I am a lifelong writer, but it also is who I am. I am an open book. You, you want to know something about me? Ask. I will answer in with brutal honesty, by the way. <laughs> you may learn more than you than you bargained for. <laughs> and by the way, that's what I'm being told is so great about, well, I shouldn't sing my own praises, but what people are enjoying about the book is that um, I'm really honest about all of my feelings, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's a chapter entitled that, as a matter of fact. So anyway, I, I got through those 10 months with that thing on my face. It was horrible. I hated it. It was a nuisance. I got really good at doing it, but it was... it. You know, it would get condensation inside and drip water. I'd be in front of a client and water would start dripping out of it. It was just horrible. And it would come off. You know, I mean, it, it was just horrible. But I had a wonderful prosthodontist who did a wonderful job, made me a great nose. I'm kind of giving you the shorter version because it was months in and out of that chair as they created the nose for me. It was a fascinating process. And um, by it was 10 months until I finally had my nose. And when I did, I was free. It was like, I, I, I'm free. I, you know, it, it was just such a sense, kind of like getting the vaccination just now for COVID, which I just got my second one. I'm free. <laughs> but I still had a lot of self-consciousness about the prosthetic because the first one, although it was really a good prosthetic, I was too shell-shocked to ask for exactly what I wanted, and it didn't look like me. It was good, and in some ways it was better than my original nose, but when I looked in the mirror, it wasn't me. It was yeah. like a little bit too turned up. It was a little too cute. My nose has never been cute, even after I got it done. It, my nose is noble. My nose is, you know, <laughs> but it's but it's not cute. Um, so as the years have gone by and I've had to get new prosthetics made because they do wear out, I have learned once again, lesson number two about being an advocate for yourself. I have learned to tell them exactly what I want. And when they say here, here you go, how's this? I say, we're close, but we're not there yet. And I always feel bad. I'm so sorry to make you do more work, but, but it needs to be a little thinner here, a little higher there, a little, you know, and I lost my beloved prosthodontist originally to the Mayo Clinic, and now he is elsewhere to, because he went on to teach other people in places where they don't have great prosthodontists, which is a wonderful calling. He was a wonderful man. And I was terrified when I went to get my third set of noses. How am I ever going to get anybody as good as him? Well, Boy, did I get lucky because the guy that I've got now, Dr. Gianetti at, um, at UCLA, is he's an artist. He's just an incredible artist. And this is his latest creation that you can see on Zoom, Jen. But sorry, the rest of the world, uh, there's, there are pictures of me in the book. But Or you can go on online and look at my Facebook page. You'll see pictures there. Well, and um, we have, we'll have your photo as part of the episode as well. Ah, there you go. So that's... Kind of where I am, I still get PET scans every year and see the uh, the oncologist. Uh, melanoma is a long-term cancer. Um, I'm hoping. I just had an oncology meeting uh, in January, and he finally agreed that after next year's PET scan next January that he thinks he'll cut me loose. I will be seeing a dermatologist for the rest of my life every six months, but I can live with that. Yeah. And I, I'm extraordinarily lucky. Melanoma is now less of a death sentence than it was when I got diagnosed 10 years ago. They have 
terrific new uh, immunotherapies for it. So a recurrence is not quite as terrifying, although it's still pretty scary for me because if it's on my face, losing more of my face is I that that would be difficult. But I, I also hear, and in fact, my oncologist even said to me when I first met this particular doctor, he said, melanoma is a cancer of tragic surprises. And I have heard in online chats of so many people, they didn't even have anything as bad as I had. They were clean for years and suddenly stage four melanoma in their lungs out of nowhere. And he said that to me and I said back to him, well, I am not going to be one of those. I'm just, I'm determined, you know, and I don't know for whatever, for whatever mindset power has over our bodies. And I don't know how much it does or it doesn't. I have to believe there is some, um, you know, I don't know that we can save ourselves. I don't blame the victim for people who, you know, for sure. but, but if there's anything my mindset can do to help me, then by God, I am going to believe and have faith that, um, and I'm not a religious person, but I am going to have faith that, uh, I'm done with cancer. Well, your so. positive outlook and approach is really inspiring. And there's definitely more I want to chat about about this. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I will be here with Barbara talking more about her journey. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social, safely of course. The important thing is that you want to get started, and you're happy to show up for yourself, and then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move, and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a copy chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Barbara Kaplan-Bennett, and we are talking about her journey with melanoma. So many interesting things I'm I'm never surprised anymore by the similarities that come up. We were talking in the break about some items that you had kind of on your notes that that we hadn't yet gotten to. And things like just the abundance of questions that come up and the challenges of communicating when we have a diagnosis like this and just the challenges of communicating and people being weird like people are weird we're all weird humans are weird we have weird responses and the challenges of sharing that diagnosis is feels so universal to me and it always seems surprising to the person experiencing it so there were a couple things I wanted to just circle back on really quickly. Um, just in terms of like timeline, it's been 16 years since your first um, basal squamous. Yeah, the, the little the little flesh colored bump that was quote unquote scar tissue. Yes, it's been 16 years for that, and in July it will be 10 years um, since the melanoma was was removed. So that's amazing. Congratulations for that. Because just Very that exciting. amount of time is so fantastic. And I wanted to also mention, you mentioned Kaiser, and Kaiser is really different region to region. Um, and even within regions, there are different hospital centers and things. And the area that you're in in California is, Kaiser is really a gold standard. They have a they, I believe they've started a teaching hospital yes. um, there as well. So just to, to kind of put that 
I was very lucky that I had very high quality care. Yes, Kaiser. I know it's not the same everywhere, but here in Los Angeles, specifically in Los Angeles, it is very top-notch care. Yeah, which is fantastic. And you had mentioned, and I I definitely want to talk about this because in the land of questions, I'm so interested in hearing about your experience with going with before a tumor board. Yes. Well, it I was getting I was getting a lot of different um answers from doctor to doctor. My head and neck surgeon wanted me to go before the tumor board, didn't feel like any more surgery was necessary necessarily, but wanted the hematologist, the oncologist, all these people to weigh in. But they, you know, you're sitting in a room, you have four or five different doctors. They put a tube down my throat to look there and into my the nasal cavity where the my nose had been removed. They were looking at everything. They looked at my blood. They felt my lymph glands. They, you know, physically examined me. I mean, they did everything. And then you go sit in a room and they all go in another room and confer. And you're left sitting there thinking all these guys, and they were all guys, oddly, because I had some really great female doctors along the way during this process, but they were all men and they all were in a room deciding my fate. It felt very kind of surreal. And they came back and informed me that the cancer cells that were still there were basically in situ pre-cancer cells. In other words, any one of them could turn into cancer at any time, but they don't know if they could even get them all by doing another surgery. Like my my other oncologist said, oh, we should do another surgery. And they all said, there's no point because if we're chasing the cells, we don't know, they jump all over your face. People are walking around the streets of of the world with these cells on their face. They are just there. And there's only a 30% chance that they will become cancerous. So rather than destroy your face, um, we're going to put you on a wait and watch. And basically, I will be on wait and watch for the rest of my life um, because who knows? And that's why I have to see the dermatologist every six months. But they also said, I asked, you know, the question was about, um, about getting radiation. The big problem about radiation, because it's my face, one is that it may have made it impossible for me to get my implant to hold the nose because it damages the tissue. It does. And I, and, and it, we're dealing with my sense of smell. We're dealing with my sense of taste, all of which are very keen. But if you radiate that part of your face over and over, and it still might not have solved the problem. So, I mean, they didn't want to radiate my entire face. Uh, chemo is not really. A uh, good answer for melanoma, as my one of my doctors said, it's like hitting a fly with an anvil or something like that. I, it, it, chemo just doesn't work well on me- melanoma. It's just not the right thing. It would be radiation or surgery were the two options. And they all decided to just leave me be. And uh, I was very happy with that answer. And that was the answer to the question about whether or not I would be able to get implant, which was one of the big questions. Yes. But of course, once they answered that question, that begged more questions of, you know, I'm a 50-something woman with osteopenia, which is the precursor to osteoporosis. Do I have enough bone mass? So then I had to go through another, you know, x-ray, special full head x-ray to look at the bones in my head. And then I got that question answered. (laughs) And then the next question was placement of it, if it would be able to sit properly in order. I mean, it was just like one after another, after another. And the holy grail, of course, was that implant so that I could have a clip-on prosthetic and not have to glue on my nose. And for those who are wondering why gluing on was such a big deal, it's very hard on your skin. The glue, if you have sensitive skin, the glue is is not good for you. You have to clean it off and use a special cleanser. It, you know, it's right now with a clip, I literally pop my nose on and off whenever I need it throughout the day. If the UPS man rings the doorbell, 
I clip on the nose and answer the door. Otherwise, I don't have a nose on at home. Can you imagine if I had to glue it on? I couldn't do that. In right. fact, I'm kind of joke that I'm like Eleanor Rigby. I I keep an I have eight noses. I keep a nose in a drawer by the door. <laughs> In case I'm downstairs, not near all my my big box of noses, and the doorbell rings, I don't want to have to run upstairs, get a nose, and run back down. So I keep a nose in a drawer. <laughs> well, um, and that's such an interesting question too, because as someone who has breast implants, right? Like right? they're in there. They do have a, you know, a quote unquote expiration date. Like, uh-huh. but I have lymphedema, so I I have um, compression garments, and they have to be replaced on a certain schedule. And it's sort of one of the questions people always ask me is, how many do you order at a time? So, how often do you replace your prosthetic, and how many do you get at a time? Well, it, when I first started getting them, uh, UCLA autom- Kaiser automatically covered everything with UCLA and covered getting two noses which was great. They're supposed to last. I, well, I've heard all different things. They're supposed to last like, according to Kaiser, five years. They don't last five years. The silicone ages and changes color. Um, because I'm a very active, uh, woman, you know, if you're an 85 year old woman who doesn't do anything or go anywhere, your nose is going to last longer. Uh, I'm a very active woman. I work on construction sites sometimes with, you know, drywall dust and sawdust, and I'm exposed to a lot of dirt in the air. And every two years, I kind of feel like that's the lifespan of my nose. Um, One prosthodontist I met with who came from another clinic in Texas, he said there they replace them every year. Oh, wow. But they're very expensive. Yes. So the last, uh, the first two times I had noses made, Kaiser covered making two of them. The third time when I went back, they had changed the policy. They would only cover making one. But the expense, once the mold is paid for and all of that and the and the shaping and the wax and the process and the doctor appointments, that's all covered by Kaiser for one nose. It is a very easy matter to make a second nose from that process. What costs money for the second nose is the painting which is they paint it to look like real flesh and match your skin tone. And that is done by, um, you know, the prosthodontist and they have a, a, an artist who works there as well, who participates in that. And the last two times Kaiser's paid for one nose and I have paid to have a second nose made and painted. So, you know, it was as, as Paul puts, as my husband puts it, you know, why would you just want to do one note? I mean, you know, if you're there and it's just a little bit more, get the second nose because if something happens to it and things do happen to it, you, you're okay. So yeah, that's why I've eight noses. I've had them made four different times. Uh, I would be probably due to have another nose made this spring, okay. but because of COVID, yeah. I've hardly had a nose on for months. I mean, I, I didn't work in April and May when it was first starting. I went back to work in June and worked through November when things weren't so bad. And when California became like the epicenter of the world, I stopped working again. So for the entire month of January and February, I have hardly worn a nose, yeah. you know, so it, they, they've, they're in a nice, safe place and they're lasting longer. Gotcha. So I have to just say that your positive attitude and sense of humor, and I think oftentimes our sense of humor can be mistaken for flippantness, or I have been told that I haven't felt all my feelings about my situation. I'm like, no, I have. Like, I just, yeah, no. (laughs) You, you don't need to see me feel all my feelings. Right. Like, and, and I tell people there's like, you know, life isn't, isn't all sunshine. Like we have 24 hours is made up of half day and half night. Like we have all the spectrum of feelings and we get to process those however we want to process those. Um, but humor has 
has, for me, been a nice way to kind of short circuit other people's challenging feelings. Um, And I kind of stumbled into that by accident. (laughs) (laughs) And you had mentioned, um, we talked about your book a little bit earlier, and you had mentioned that your niece at the toward the beginning of your journey, set up um, CaringBridge for you as a place for you to post updates for people, for people to follow you. So for anyone who's not familiar with CaringBridge, it's an online portal. I guess portal will be the right word where people can subscribe to your updates. Yes, so that the family can post an update of condition and that saves people from having to email or call, you know, a hundred people to say she came through surgery. Okay. You just post it in one place and everyone can see it. Yes. Okay. Anyone who cares can see it. Yes. So could you share a little bit about your experience with caring bridge and, and how that kind of became a, a journal of sorts for you and then morphed into the book? Well, I, I, I have always been a writer, although before this happened, I called myself a recovering novelist because I, even though I've written three novels, I've discovered I'm really not a great American novelist, but I, but I love writing essays and memoirs and opinion pieces and things like that. And I didn't even think about that when I started doing The Caring Bridge. It was simply to tell people what was happening. So as a writer, I started posting these updates and they quickly turned into uh, descriptive essays about what I was feeling and going through and thinking and what it was, what the experience was like. And it became a real journal, a real place for me to, to put all those feelings. And I ended up writing pretty much every day for quite a while. And then it slowly tapered off. but. People were reading them and saying, you've got to turn this into a book. This is this is amazing. You have to turn this into a book. And I said, yeah, maybe someday, whatever. And I thought when I was all done with it, I would maybe do that. But the truth was, when I when I was a year out and everything was basically over, I just wanted to live my life. I did yeah. not want to go back and rehash that's that year. So I thought, well, I need some more time and years passed. And about four years ago, I thought, you know what, it's time for me to start working on this. And I did. And I got maybe 10, 15 pages written of an introduction and sort of the pre-story, the, the prequel, they call it now. Um, and my life kind of blew up. Paul and I lead a very low drama life, but my life kind of went crazy. We suddenly had to move unexpectedly. We were in a big car accident. All these things happened. It was, and it just got left in the dust and never picked up again until COVID. And I'm at home, not working. (laughs) And it's four o'clock in the morning, not sleeping, going, how the hell not for the next, you know, there's only so many projects around the house you can do before you just want to do something else. And I realized this is it. This is my golden opportunity. And so in April, basically I got the whole thing done in April. I edited all the caring bridge entries. I wrote the beginning prequel part. I wrote the, what happened after I recovered and how my life has been. And I was very lucky and was able to find a publisher, which I was extraordinarily good luck. And it came out in July. It all happened pretty quickly. So I, yeah, which is very exciting for me because, you know, as I I said, I wrote a Huffington Post piece. I don't know if you saw that or not. I should send you the link. Yes, Uh, please do. I'll link it to the episode. Yes. And the Huffington Post piece was basically about the fact that my most horrifying life experience led to my dream, my life's dream coming true of becoming a published author. I mean, I'd published some things before, but not like a whole book that strangers were reading. It wasn't just my family and friends, but that people were reading and commenting and sending me emails. And that is just 
you know, was just amazing and glorious. So the worst thing led to the best thing. As so often it does. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing about life, isn't it? It is indeed. It is indeed. And I think that's such a cathartic experience as well, like being able to do that journaling and the and writing down and processing your feelings that way and having a team who referred you to someone to talk to, like to recognize that it it was a very challenging diagnosis and that you would need that support. And that's something that I really want to see for cancer survivors across the board, because too often that's not part of the, you know, kind of standard of care. Yes. And, and it's a something that people really struggle with. And support yeah. groups don't always hit the mark. No. And Kaiser was very good. In fact, I would have asked if they hadn't told me, but they came right out. I mean, immediately they said, here's, here's all the things you need to know. And we will refer you to our oncological psychotherapist. Um, if you would like to have some sessions with her and she was wonderful and it was very helpful. I I'd done therapy before, but about very different subject matters about, you know, other life things. Um, this was unique and yeah, so that was really helpful. Yeah. And I think that that really shines that light on therapy in general. Like there are many times in our lives and many different circumstances that we could all benefit from a few sessions. (laughs) Very (laughs) true. I don't think I know anybody who wouldn't benefit from a few sessions. Right. Yeah. I am. I'm very much an advocate of that for sure. For sure. So I don't think we've actually said the name of your book. Oh, the name of my book is Noseworthy. And it means a lot of things. But one of the jokey things somewhere along the line when I was taping on the plastic shell, um, and it was so much trouble to do that, you know, you had to cut the, the bandages a certain way and I mean, I got really good at it, but it was still a real pain in the in the tush. But it became a thing of, well, you know, do you want to do you want to have lunch? And I would ask myself if somebody would invite me. Oh, let's have lunch. I'd love to see you. Um, it became a thing of, is that somebody that I want to bother to go through this laborious process of putting on a nose for? And the old Seinfeld episode where Elaine has a limited number of birth control sponges and she only slept with men that she deemed sponge worthy. (laughs) So I only had lunch with people or saw people that I deemed nose worthy. (laughs) That is amazing. I love that. (laughs) I love that. And there's that sense of humor again. Gotta have it. And I'm very blessed also to have a husband. You know, Paul was really quite adept at dropping a line when it needed, not when it, I mean, he knew he was very sensitive. He never made jokes when I was in my sobbing mode. You know, that is, you know, not the time to do it. But he was very good at knowing sometimes when I was teetering on the edge of being okay or not being okay. And he would drop a funny line that would that would make me laugh. That would be perfectly, uh, perfectly appropriate at the moment. (laughs) Yes, uh, I have a feeling that our husbands would get along well. (laughs) Probably so. There's sometimes to the outside world, someone will be like, you know, horrified by something. And I'm like, no, it's funny because it's not at all like a thing. Like it's. He actually, one of the first times that I broke down, it was because he was putting out this like stack of dishes for me every morning. So I didn't have to reach into the cabinet after my surgery. And I said, you don't have to put the dishes out because I can reach into the cabinet now. And it's just one dish at a time. So you don't have to put the dishes out. And he was like, no, I'm putting the dishes out. And I was like, you really don't have to. 
And he was like, well, I don't think you should be reaching into the cabinet. And I like lost it. And he was like, thank God. Like, God, you lost it. Yeah. He was like, oh, oh, good. Like, (laughs) good. (laughs) Because I think he was a little freaked out. Keep holding it all together. (laughs) Yeah. And so then I was like, well, everyone just stop telling me what I can and can't do. (laughs) I am an adult. I equally like you were talking about your husband off air earlier and and my I was very fortunate to also have a supportive and loving partner and that that makes such a huge difference as well. Difference, yes. Yeah. I I don't know, especially given the facial disfigurement aspect of it. I don't know, you know. People say, oh, you have such a great attitude, blah, blah, blah. But if I hadn't had him, I really don't know if I'd have gotten out of bed in the morning. I mean, I yeah, I probably would have. But boy, it would have been a lot harder and a lot bigger of a struggle to face the world um, without him by my side. So, yeah. yeah, when you have a partner that sees you for you. And not necessarily the outward representation of you that we sometimes get attached to. Having to look a certain way or when they and my husband will frequently say, I don't see that. Oh, which actually reminds me of a very funny story, if I may. Do we have time for absolutely? Yes. It's exactly what you just said. And I, I, I've told this story a million times and it's also in the book. So if you've already heard it, if you're somebody watching, please forgive me. But so it was about three, I think three or four years after my surgery and I did a Passover Seder or, um, for some, you know, a group of people I do one every year. Like I said, I'm not terribly religious, but the one thing I love to do is do a Passover Seder. My guests were going to arrive. I had actually, for the first time ever, hired a TaskRabbit person, you know, TaskRabbit, um, to help me in the kitchen. And uh, one of my friends, uh, one of our, our poker buddies, our guy friend, was bringing his new girlfriend who I'd never met, um, a lovely doctor um, from Switzerland, and and she was kind of new to the, his life and new to the group. So... I'm preparing myself to, for the evening, I take a shower, I do my hair, I do my makeup, I look in the mirror, I go, oh, looking good. Okay, look, ah, I'm very, this is great. I, I feel good. I look good tonight. So I march out to answer the door for the task rabbit woman. I let her in. We're working in the kitchen. The guests start to arrive. I go out with uh, my friend Adam and his, and his girlfriend Donna arrive. I go to greet them, but Donna, it's so nice to meet you. And she's lovely. And she gives me a big hug and I go to hug Adam and he kind of looks away, kind of half-heartedly hugs me and then walks away to talk to someone else. And I'm like, well, that was a little weird. What was the story there? But I don't have time to think about it because I have to go stir my matzo ball soup. So I go to the kitchen and I lean I, t- I take off the lid of the pot and I leaned back because when steam rises, you know, with a prosthetic, you're wearing basically a hunk of rubber on your face. I go to lean back so that the steam won't hurt the prosthetic. And I realize I have no nose on. <laughs> I knew that that's where this was going. I answered the door, the poor task rabbit woman. And Adam is very squeamish. All the time he's known me wearing the prosthetic, he's never been one who said, can I see you without your nose, which some of my friends have said. And his wife, or not his wife, his girlfriend is a doctor, so she's not squeamish. So she thought it was fascinating. And I'm standing in the kitchen and I realize I have no nose on and I scream out into the dining room, honey, why didn't you tell me I don't have a nose on? And he screams back to me, because you look normal to me. <laughs> oh. 
I looked normal to me. I looked normal to him. But. <laughs> and, you know, on that note, we're I think we're going to wrap up because there's just no better note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story and oh. your just your joy and your humor and your great outlook. There is nothing I I just love 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 when people share their story and it's it could be such a different story but it just Thank you. Thank you for Oh, it has been my pleasure. I am so you you have done a wonderful job with this and I have so appreciated because not everybody does. Um, you know, I've had some experiences with interviewers who it was who was all a little strange, but but this was a delight to be part of. Uh, so thank you so much for asking me to do this. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story with people. If anybody wants an autographed copy of Noseworthy, you'll have something, I believe, on the site. They can email me. It's also available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But it's just a pleasure to talk to you. And I know when I heard your TED Talk, I knew we would get along great because there were so many things you said that resonated so strongly with me. And I thought, there's a woman after my own heart. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. And yes, we will have Barbara's information in the show notes. So you can take a look for that there. Um, And also, if you are not part of the group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, please come on over. Um, It is the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Come on over, join the conversation there. That is our episode and have a fabulous week. Thank you. Thank you.